Welcome to Three Associated, a podcast that goes behind the door of therapists working in a relational psychoanalytic model. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. We're both therapists. And we're both supervisees of Jill. And I'm Jill, supervisor and therapist and co-author with Jackie Winship of the book, The Talking Cure. While people might think that therapists have it all together, we don't. We get stuck, experience challenges, and have blind spots. All of this affects our work, and this is where relational psychoanalytic supervision comes in. In this podcast, we will take you behind the closed doors of supervision, where we focus on the blind spots of the therapists to ascertain how factors outside of their awareness impacts their work and their ability to help their patients. In each episode, we explore a relational dilemma arising in the context of working with a fictitious patient. While none of these patients are real, the relational dynamics are. Episode 3, When an Explosion is Detonated in Session. Rach, help. It's bad. Yeah. You know how last time I was sad? Uh Uh-huh. Well, now I'm bad. I was bad. He was bad. The session was bad. Everything is just bad. Oh, dear. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, Jill, uh, I just had a session which, uh, like, it's one of those sessions that you have where you just think I'm in the wrong job and I need to pursue floristry or something, which is just going to be. Oh my goodness, that <laughs> where, sounds terrible. Where, not the floristry, where, but the giving up of the therapy. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure it's not easy to be a florist, but you know, the fantasy of a job that uh, I just, it just... Where the, the objects don't talk back. Exactly, exactly. I just feel it was just, uh, just such a bad session. I feel like I really mucked up and it's a real mess and I feel really scared of the patient now and I feel really scared that I'm not going to be able to think in his presence and I'm just, I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing and, oh, it's terrible. So. Well, you better jump in now and tell me what happens. Yeah, give it enough, enough caveats. Um, so I'm bringing someone back who we've talked about before. Um, and this is the guy in his early 60s who I'm seeing after his son died of an overdose, mm. an opioid overdose. Um, and if you remember, we're kind of sitting with, with the pain of that question of what do you do when your best isn't mm. good enough. And one thing that I, I took away from the last session when we talked about him was about choice. You know, we discussed mm. how, how there was kind of a prohibition in the sessions around thinking about or talking about choices that the patient mm. might have had um, that were anything other than between a rock and a hard place and, you know, how I kind of needed to hold the tension between his hurt and the hurt that he might have caused mm. and his position as a victim and as a perpetrator mm. as well. And, you know, the again, kind of I, I went away from that session thinking, okay, I still need to kind of just sit with him in his pain for a long time mm. and to keep in the back of my mind challenging his ideas about not having a choice. 
Um, but that was for much further down the track. Yep. Um, and ugh, yeah, something happened in our last session where I just, yeah, I just moved too quickly and now it's, um, oh, it just feels disastrous. So, um, yeah, just kind of a bit more context. So the patient was describing an experience where he was about to get out of jail and his son was 12 and he and his son were desperate to see each other. And my patient was also desperate to see a uh, love interest that he'd met when he was incarcerated, but hadn't spent any time within the outside world. And so there was this choice about who was he going to spend his first night out of, out of jail with the love interest or the son. And he chose to see the love interest and left the son in the care of a friend of his. Um, and that night there was an altercation between the son and the friend where the friend asked the son to do something and the son said no. And then the friend ended up abusing the son and he broke some of his ribs and broke his jaw. And Goodness. yeah, <laughs> terrible. And the patient was describing feeling sad about how, you know, he'd done his best and he's let, and he'd let his son down. And so I was just kind of trying to be with him in the experience, you know, and I said, that's, it's just so sad. You know, it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking that you prioritizing your needs of your son's needs in this situation resulted in your son being abused. And he said, what did you say? And I just thought he misheard. So I just repeated, you know, it's just, it's just so sad. Mm. And he said, no, what, what did you say about my priorities? And so I picked up that there was, it was quite a quick shift. Mm. And so I just gently repeated what I said about him choosing to prioritize his needs over his son's needs. And as I was saying this, it's like his whole demeanor changed and he leaned forward and he kind of hissed in a way that I hadn't heard him hiss or talk like this before, but he said, mm -hmm. I've, I've never, I've never prioritized myself over my son. And then he explained how, you know, choosing to see his love interest that night, he was trying to find someone who could be the mother for his son that, mm -hmm. that the son mm -hmm. never had. And then as he was saying this, I was starting to feel really angry and defensive. And I kind of felt like I was getting caught up in something and I couldn't kind of stop it. And so I sort of pointed out, you know, that he chose to see his lover and he was choosing to pursue you know, his romantic interests over the son's interests. Um, and I was trying to normalize it. I was saying, you know, of course, you know, you were starved of affection and you wanted to mm -hmm. see this woman. And, um, but, you know, you did choose to see her kind of thing. And oh, it was just such, it was just such a mistake. He just, he like leaned forward in his chair and he just said, we're going around in circles here and just really glared at me. And he said, this is going nowhere. We're going nowhere. And I kind of felt like it was important to hold his stare. So we were both really like kind of leaning forward and staring at each other. And then I started to feel really scared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and he just stared right at me and he said, you have no idea what the fuck you're doing. And then I just had this thing happen where it was like, I've never really had it like mm -hmm. in therapy before, but I just, it was just like I left the room. Mm -hmm. Um, so one minute I was staring at his eyes and then the next it was like I came to and I was just looking at my shoes and I wasn't, wasn't sure how long I'd sort of been mm -hmm. gone for or mm -hmm. he was still staring at me. But I remembered him saying, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. So I just kind of echoed it. I was like, oh, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. 
And he continued to stare and I stared and I just couldn't think about anything mm-hmm. and felt really startled. And I don't really know what happened for the rest of the session. I think I was just sort of trying to find my feet mm-hmm. um, and recover my composure and just desperately, like the whole mm-hmm. time I was just like, just think, just think, but I, mm-hmm. I couldn't mm-hmm. think. And he was just holding me in his stare and I just felt really scared and I felt like mm-hmm. kind of prey, I guess. Um, and he still booked in to see me next week. And so I'm thinking about seeing him and I hadn't been able to stop thinking about that moment where it was like, I just kind of left the room and I couldn't think. And he's been in my dreams and I just, I'm just filled with dread when it comes to seeing him this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feels so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm just dreading, um, I'm just dreading seeing him mm-hmm. next week and it just feels like a mess and it's bad. Well, no wonder you're dreading seeing him. I think anybody would be dreading seeing him. I would be dreading seeing him too. It's honestly, mm. he was massively aggressive, hostile, attacking. Um, and it's interesting that you did feel frightened in the room. I need to check again, which I did check when you first spoke with him, whether you felt physically threatened or it was just the emotional intensity that was frightening. Um, yeah, I think I think it was the emotional intensity that mm. felt frightening. Like I said, I think, yeah, I think he was a dangerous man. I don't mm. think he is anymore. Okay. Um, and it was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like he was going to get up from his chair and hit me or anything. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I just needed to check that, yeah, and yeah. that clears the decks. But let me say, I think anybody would be dreading seeing him because it was a huge attack on you. Just realistically, it was an attack. So we need to acknowledge that. I think you did dissociate in the room in that I think that your mind was flooded and you genuinely, literally couldn't think. Mm. However, where I would disagree with you, Andy, is I don't think it was such a mess and so terrible. Mm. I really think that it was important that it came into the room that he made a choice because... In our first supervision session around this, this was something we talked about, about the fact that he is invested in disowning any responsibility for choices, which I understand because he's having to look at the fact that the son had an overdose, um, which is a massive trauma for any parent to really take in. And we did feel then that part of him feeling that he had no choice was around the pain of thinking that you've made choices that are deeply problematic for somebody you love. So I don't really feel that it was a mess. Was it an enactment with a capital E? Mm. Yes, because I think the dissociated part of you that perhaps was judging, because I felt in our last supervision session I was carrying the judgment Mm. and you were carrying the sorrow. So maybe the part of you that does have a judgment and as therapists we do have a judgment that that part of you came into the room and it clashed with his part of wanting to dissociate responsibility for choices and it became a kind of conflagration Mm. but I feel that something very very important can flow from it because it's not around trying to force him to take responsibility for choices to be punitive 
But how can you ever move on if you just see that everything you do is dictated by the world mm. and nothing you do actually comes from yourself? So, mm. yes, I'd be dreading my next session, but no, I don't think that it was actually a mess. I think it was a classic enactment and I think that a repair, if the two of you can get to expand now, the ways in which he can think and you can think about his life, his choices and other choices going forward, mm. I think that'll be helpful to him. Because mm. I guess like what, what I keep thinking about is that moment that I had when I sort of dissociated, mm. I keep thinking about how many times he would have had that moment when he was experiencing abuse or when his son would have had that moment or, you know, so I feel like there's some sort of, it's like there's some sort of parallel process or something where it's like in in the fear and the terror that I felt of him, I'm tasting something of what he would have experienced in his life. So like, I don't know. I, and I 100% agree with that. But again, I feel even in the room now, you're going quickly on board with his victim position, mm. which is what we were talking about in the first supervision session, because yes, I totally agree with you. It's a parallel process that that dissociative uh, defense is something I'm sure that he experienced mm. and we do need to hold that in mind but if we go too quickly to identify with the victim part of him mm. then we're disowning perhaps the persecutor part and maybe also you disowning the fact that you did make a judgment and think what on earth was he doing Mm. leaving his son with somebody who, if he's a friend, he must have some understanding that the guy is a temper. Yeah, that's, that's true. Because I think, that's really interesting actually, because I think that when, you know, when I was saying like, it's so sad, it's so heartbreaking, like, mm. I guess I was really trying to be in his experience with him. But I think if I'm being honest, I didn't, I wasn't feeling sad about that. I thought it was bad, like, that he did that <laughs> well, <when you're> <laughs> like that, that was a, that was a bad decision it's not it's not yeah it's not i wasn't yeah i said it was sad but I, I, well when you said it to me i have to say you didn't come across as sad it did come across as though you felt it was bad and when he challenged you you were then able to contact the fact is i do think that it was bad what on earth was he thinking about mm. and that thought did go through your head and you were also able to be in contact with challenging him by holding the stairs so the anger and not just the sadness in you was able to come into the room and you know i guess for me, it's around him being able to access at a different level his sadness about not only that life was terrible and dealt him a dreadful hand, which it did, mm. but that perhaps he didn't play that hand mm. uh, as well as one might have. Mm. Without being a judgment, it's just being a statement of fact that it would have been a better decision mm. not to have left your son with somebody who you have to know at some level has got a propensity for violence because the person's a friend and you know that you mix in that world. Mm. Mm. And so what What do I, I guess I want to say what do I do or what do I, you know, because I'm, I'm so, when I think about this session that's coming up, I just, mm. you know, it's like 
I'll have moments where I'm walking along the street and I'll think about the session and I'll think like, oh man, if that bus could just veer off the road and wipe me out, you know, not, I mean, I'm not going to throw myself in front of a bus. I don't mean that, but I just, I just mean, I'm thinking about all these fantasies that would mean that I wouldn't have to see this guy ever again <laughs> because I just feel so, um, I'm just so dreading mm. how to kind of recover, what to do. Okay, but Andy, that's a huge statement that I'd prefer to go under the bus than have to see the patient. Mm. So I think it is talking about the power of his anger and the annihilating quality of it because what you're wanting to do is I'd rather self-annihilate than get into this situation and feel annihilated and in a way that is true because your mind was annihilated. You couldn't think. You couldn't actually come up with any way of intervening mm. and that is shameful and annihilating so to want to avoid that I can understand but it's still information that we have to think about about the annihilatory power of this man yes you were a reception you received it mm. and so that's where the co-construction is so there's perhaps as I'm hearing it Auntie that there's some feeling in you that you ought to be able to have withstood this attack, that you ought to have been able to think in the face of it. And to me, it feels that we have to take in the fact that when we are unexpectedly attacked, most of us actually can't. Mm. Now the question is perhaps not to go to what you said to him in the session, no, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, mm. because I don't think that that's actually true, because what you're doing is trying to hold in your mind that he's both a perpetrator and a victim. What you're doing is try to challenge him and not just go along with the fact that it's all sad and terrible, which it is, mm. but there are other elements in it too. So... That having been said, can you think about how you would like to open the session with him? That would be helpful, using all the information that you've got inside of you now. Yeah. Your counter-transference included. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I feel, I feel tempted to overcompensate. So the fantasy is that I start the session by saying something like, you know, last time when I said it was sad, I actually meant... It was bad, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not going to do that. It's not going to be round two. Oh, yes, that's um, a really hard place. You're not going to do that, and you're right to say round two because you're then owning at least the fact that you want to push back, Yeah, which but, is not a bad impulse. Right, right, but I think I want to, I think I want to find out more about what was happening for him when he got really angry at me. Exactly. And try to get him to think about that. Mm -hmm. And for us, for us to understand it together. Because mm -hmm. um, it just felt like in that, in, that, in that scenario, like it was just all limbic system for both of us. You know, there was no capacity to reflect or think together. And so I'd like to sort of try to do that. Well, I'm totally in agreement and on board with that. So if you were to think about it, of course you'll say what emerges in the room when you get there. But if we just have the fantasy around it, how could you think about opening the session? Saying what to him? Yeah, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe something along the lines of um, it felt like something important happened between us last session that we need to understand. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was palpable how angry you were with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested to hear more about what was happening for you mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And how would you feel and react if he actually responds by saying, I was angry because... You know, you made the most ridiculous statement that <laughs> I, you know, uh, prioritized myself above my son. Yeah, I think I would probably have to take a deep breath <laughs> um, and and say something along the lines of, um, I don't know, it's something, it's something about speaking to him saying that I didn't know what I was doing. And, and something about owning that it had some effect that was important for us to mm. understand. I'm not quite sure what... Okay, that sounds, that sounds encouraging because that came up from his side saying, you know, you have no idea what you've done. So I think that's a good way to start. So maybe perhaps to say to him, you know, look, something very intense and difficult happened between us. And I'm aware that I actually offended you deeply. Mm. And you did say to me, you have no idea, you know, what you've done or what you've said. So I really would like to know what I did. Mm. And then hear what he has to say. And... You know, my suspicion is he would say, well, you actually accused me or you, you know, said that I didn't prioritize my my son. And then to say, well, I can hear that that might be offensive, and it certainly was offensive. But I just wonder sometimes whether we get very offended because there's something about what the other person said we don't want to think about. Mm. So I might just step into the the difficulty rather than step away from it because mm. I think the intensity of his reaction to me speaks to the fact that he really doesn't want to think about it or entertain it. So if you use what he said to you, you've got no idea what you've done, plus the intensity, mm. and then kind of speculate around saying, well, I guess where I was coming from is that sometimes when there's a very strong reaction... Uh, it can signal that it's something very hard to think about. Mm. And I do wonder if that's what happened. But if you're telling me no, well, I'm not going to push it. But mm. I did wonder that. Mm. Mm. And even like, even like your, your, uh, I did, I did have no idea what I was doing in terms of opening that up. That wasn't what I was. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that would be a, a good way to go because you're staying close to actually what was said and close to the experience, which was hugely intense. Mm. Mm. I mean, Andy, we toward the end, but where are you sitting now with this? Does it still feel like the bus would be a better option? <laughs> <laughs> and if it does, you can feel free to say so. <laughs> mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I think the fantasy of never having to see him again still holds some mm-hmm. attraction. Um, but mm-hmm. I also think there's something about, yeah, feeling like I've got some 
room now to explore that mm. a bit more with him. And I think, yeah, I think that fear that I had of just not being able to think, mm. um, I think if I approach it this way, then the hope is that we are able to, you know, keep our prefrontal cortices a bit more online than they were last time. Well, um, let me maybe finish by saying I would also have a great fantasy of never seeing him again if right. I were you. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind about that. <laughs> okay. but, but the one thread that I do see between the first supervision on him and the second is that he very powerfully prohibits you mm. from thinking certain things about him, specifically thinking about the fact that he has choices and that perhaps he didn't make the best choices. So... Mm. I think I would want at least to offer you the supervision to expand those degrees of mm. freedom in your mind to be able to think. So it's not only limbic system, but I can assure you that my fantasy would also be, oh my goodness, I wish that that session was over. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think there's we'll something see about, what happens. Yeah, I think something about being able to... Um, now that I've really experienced being on the receiving end of an attack from him and him being the perpetrator, I just need to hold on to that part of him as well. And I think that that will help me feel less overwhelmed when that part comes out as well. Yes, to hold on to the perpetrator as well as the victim and to hold on to the fact that there's tremendous pressure on you to prohibit you yeah. from thinking certain things. Yeah. And yeah. to not necessarily go along with that doesn't mean you have to articulate it, but you don't have to go along with it. Yeah. 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 Cool. Thanks, Jill. In this next part of the episode, we reflect together on what happened in the session. We identify the dilemma we took into the supervision session and then the blind spots that emerged. Blind spots include bright spots and dark spots. A bright spot is when we are blinded to the overall picture and can only see a sliver of what is occurring in ourselves and in the interaction. A dark spot is when the issues are more completely out of sight. We finish by reflecting on what we distilled from the session and then move on to teaching points. Okay, so Andy, what was, uh, what was the dilemma going into this second part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the dilemma felt pretty obvious this time. It was just like... An explosion had detonated in session and I couldn't think in the face of it. And I felt frozen and fearful and unknowing of what to do next. And yeah, so it's just like, how do you, what, what do you do after something's exploded in your face? Mm -hmm. And in terms of the, the blind spots this time, Jill, we start with the, the bright spot. Was there, was there a bright spot? <laughs> well, ironically there was because I, I guess in a sort of trauma position because again I do think that Andy was in a trauma position where it's quite hard to think about blind spots and bright spots because as I say and it's interesting that you spoke about an explosion because bright spots and dark spots are things that are repressed or in a put away in a room whereas trauma is when the whole building is actually exploding which I think did happen um, for you and it was hard to think but then I think you went to your default position, which is to over-identify. You know, you still mm. were seeing him as this victim, even though from where I was sitting, he was a dreadful perpetrator in relation to the sun. And I think that the dark spot was that actually you were really angry with him and you went to talk about being sad 
rather than talk about being angry because that felt even more scary in the face of somebody who was raging. So, mm. yes, interestingly, the bright spot was the same as when he was coming saying his best wasn't good enough and was really much more inhabiting the victim position. But even when he inhabited the perpetrator position, I still think that was the bright spot. Mm. That's so true, because I think even when you pointed out to me in session that he was in the role of perpetrator and he was attacking me, I remember being very quick to say, well, what I was experiencing must have been what it was like for him to experience things in the role of victim. Like I went straight to that, um, even in the face of you being very explicit about it being an attack on me and him being the perpetrator, it was kind of too much, it's like too much for me to face or to hold or something. I think that's absolutely true. I think it was just too much to face or to hold Mm. because the horror of it was quite extreme. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And then my own judgment in the face of decisions that he made and having difficulty owning the fact that I thought they were were bad decisions rather than that it was sad. Yeah. And owning the fact that he did have agency, which is interesting because that was the distillation and the insight from the last session, Mm. was that he had agency, but it was very hard to hold on to that. And so I think that that for me, one of the things that we come back to is how hard it is for the therapist to think when something traumatic has happened, an explosion has detonated in the room. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it was a good illustration of that. Mm. So what was the distillation this time around? What did you walk away with after? Yeah, I think I think there was a lot, but I think um, one thing in particular was the idea of how to go back to the patient and try to understand with him what happened between us by going meta to the dynamic and trying to get both of us to think about it rather than just being two kind of limbic systems locked in some awful kind of dance in the room. Um, and I think there's something about recognizing my own judgment around the patient's former choices and just being able to own that for myself that kind of changed my counter-transference towards the patient and feels like it's allowed me more room to move with him. Mm -hmm. And Jill, is there anything you'd want to add there? Well, I would. I'd like to add something from the patient perspective and say that You know, when we think developmentally for a child to survive their own violence, because the little two-year-old can have very violent tantrums, but the point is being two, they can't do damage, whereas being his age, he certainly can. But I think the process is the same. The little child learns how to contain the aggression and to work with it if the caretaker neither flees nor retaliates. And I guess that's going to be the challenge. For you, Andy, when you mm. you know meet with him again, not to flee too much and take flight in terms of your own anxiety, which was pretty extreme, and nor to get in, give in to the anger and sort of retaliate subtly, because I think that all of us have to learn to contain our violence, and I think it's having it contained in that way that is helpful. Mm. What were your learning points, Andy? So again, I think there were three learning points for me from this one. The first was around staying with the patient's affect and dropping my own agenda when the affect is too intense for any thinking to take place. The second, which I kind of hate to admit, but that messiness is an opportunity, especially if one can be courageous in facing the discomfort of returning to it, 
So it's like the moments that we most want to bury or set on fire and forget about are the moments we actually need to return to. And third, that therapists are allowed their judgment. So sometimes things are bad or, you know, a bad cigar is a bad cigar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, staying with affect um, and dropping agenda. Yeah. Um, Seeing messiness as an opportunity. Begrudgingly, yes. (laughs) Um, And allowing us as therapists uh, our own judgments. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the teaching points, Jill. Well, I think two. I think one is how easy it is to be caught in an idea of what an ideal therapist is, and that when we get caught in that, we go to self-judgment, which really interferes and cuts across our degrees of freedom in the room. And then the other point is I felt it was a good example of projective identification because I felt that the patient couldn't tolerate any feelings potentially of shame or guilt around not prioritizing the son's needs and he then produced in Andy terrible feelings of shame, annihilation and guilt that I think he uh, perhaps had stimulated in him but he needed immediately to eject. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the concept of um, the ideal image that we have as therapists um, and projective identification. Yep. Uh, Andy, any closing questions? Yeah, I think similar to my first session with this guy, Jill, I guess I'm curious about if we're thinking of him rather than me, if the spotlight's shifting, what do you think it was about the patient that made me dissociate and leave the room in his presence? Well, I think that this patient uses a very early form of communication, which is communication by impact. And I think that he certainly impacted you and he uses it perhaps more than most. We all use it at moments. And I think that that could, from a Kleinian perspective, reflect his own innate disposition toward aggression. But I think we can't drop from our minds the fact that he had a terrible trauma history, which would predispose him to behave toward others the way people behave toward him. So that would be the one thing. Mm -hmm. And I also think that this form of communication has been reinforced as it coerces others into backing off and therefore consolidates the whole style. So many lenses, relational trauma, attachment theory, Klein, so many reasons to keep three associating. You have been listening to Three Associating, a podcast on relational psychoanalytic supervision with Jill, Rachel, and myself, Andy. See you next time.